is God. This is part two of a two-part series on the rapture. It was going to just be one part. And then uh, last week, I don't know how many pages I had, and I got through like a page and a half because I barely looked at my notes. And I thought, man, I have my whole message here pretty much standing be- sitting before me because I wanted to uh, get into the whole, uh, you know, one taken and then one, be le- one being left or those who are left behind. And I do believe that that is a classic rapture text. Uh, how though, however, uh, most theologians today in almost every prophetic camp, I shouldn't say most, but many, if not most, deny that it refers to the rapture when one will be taken and one will be left. And I want to look at that text. And we believe very strongly in the rapture of the church here at Blessed Hope Chapel. Uh, scriptures teach it very clearly. We do believe the rapture is at the end of the tribulation. That's what the church had believed for the first 1,800 years of church history. In fact, you don't see even a debate on the timing of the rapture. It was just at the second coming until the 19th century, around 1830, uh, and the Irvingites. And I have a debate that I did with Dr. Stoffer in Colorado a few years back, which we've got a lot of really favorable reviews uh, on that. You can watch that on uh, our YouTube channel. Uh, I also did a video called Left Behind Led Astray that you could check out as well where we went clear across the world to do interviews uh, on this subject as well. But since we believe that the rapture is at the second coming and we don't believe the church is taken out before the tribulation, sometimes people say, oh, you must, they must not believe in the rapture. You know, because some people deny the rapture's existence. And that would be a false charge. We definitely believe in the rapture. Uh, we believe that Jesus would come back and He'll take us out uh, before that last, that day of wrath at the very end. Uh, and when he comes in fiery judgments with his mighty angels of flaming fire to take vengeance on those who dwell on the earth. And we'll be raptured. We look forward to that time. Amen. But we don't believe the Lord takes us out at the two-minute warning. Just when the church is needed most to shine the light in the last years of human history. To watch from the bleachers our brethren go through the greatest tribulation ever and have a party while they're suffering. Uh, Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the wedding supper of the Lamb is that in Revelation 19, at the end, right before his second coming, way into Revelation 19, the bride finally says the bride made herself ready. Verse 7, 5 through 7, or 7 through 9, I'm sorry, verse 11, he comes back. Now, the scriptures are real clear, and last week we talked uh, quite a bit about the rapture, so I'll just mention one verse, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, I, uh, two verses. I love these, this passage. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, the Greek word remain is like a, a word that means like can we mean remnant or those who survive, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. How can you deny that we'll be caught up? To, that's the rapture. Caught up. Some say, well, the word rapture, that word rapture isn't in the Bible. Well, the word caught up is, <laughs> the Greek word is harpazo, and it means to be caught up. In fact, I pointed out last week that in the book of Jude, it talks about as firefighters for Christ, we're supposed to snatch people out of the fire, Amen. That Greek word translated snatch is harpazo. So you can actually translate the word caught up. You could translate, you can, you can put under that. Uh, those who remain will be snatched up <laughs> together. I like that. With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll always be with the Lord. I like that because we're actually, the, there's going to be a lot of chaos in the world at that time. A lot of the earth will have been burned at that time. 
But God will protect us from his wrath even as he protected the Jews in the land of Goshen. Amen? And praise God for that. So now please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 through 42. And let's look at these verses because these are precious verses. And you know, I love the topic of the second coming. In fact, the name of this fellowship is called what? Blessed Hope Chapel. Amen. And Blessed Hope is, the Blessed Hope is his return. Amen. And the Blessed Hope isn't, his, isn't the idea of his return so we don't have to go through trials. Jesus is the Blessed Hope. It's the idea that we get to be with him forever. That, he's our hope. Amen. In fact, looking for the Blessed Hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. That verse is just so good because it's not only about his coming, but he's called our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, praise God, a sacrifice to redeem us from all iniquity and purify us, uh, purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. Amen? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things. There's salvation. He's our Savior, gave himself for us, the deity of Christ, the fact that he's coming, his, the blessed hope, the sanctification, the fact that he purifies us, justification, amen, glorification, because we're going to be with him, and also an encouragement to do good works, do good deeds. There's a lot in those two verses right there. And right before that, it's really good too. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to who? All men, right? Shows his omnibenevolence. He loves everyone. Doesn't want to let any would perish. So we've got an awesome God, but we're going to be caught up at the end of the tribulation on the day, at the, on the day of the Lord to escape the day, great day of his wrath. And it's a beautiful, beautiful truth. Now, if you're in Matthew chapter 24 now, if you can look at that with me, it says, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? You're just, you know, you're in the field with a guy. You're witnessing to him. Man, it's getting late. Don't you see what's been going on? You know? You're like, you've, you've, you know, hooked it to the boonies, you know. You've escaped where the mark of the beast could be given because you're in such a remote area. And there's this guy you've been sharing with, but he just doesn't want to give up his, his you know, his poppy seeds, you know. Or I should say his seeds, his, his heroin, right? Or whatever it is. And you're just witnessing to him. And he's like, man, you know, I'm tired of hearing you talk about this Jesus. I think I'm going to turn you into the, to the Antichrist or whatever, you know. Probably wouldn't come out that way. And all of a sudden, he just looks around and then he looks back and you're gone. And he, you're nowhere to be seen in the field. I mean, there's going to be scenarios, I mean, you can't ima- I mean that we can only imagine. Uh, you know, two people grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. Two people in one bed, Jesus said elsewhere. A believer, one taken, one left. Now, it's interesting because even though a lot of amillennialists and postmillennialists and Others believe he's talking about being taken in judgment or, and left behind are the ones who are the righteous. A lot of pre-tribs, even a lot of post-tribs believe that, believe it or not. A lot of pre-tribs believe that. Pre-tribs have been kind of mixed up on it as far as there's different views on that. In fact, I don't know if you ever, ever seen the movie Thief in the Night. That was the first pre-trib rapture movie I'd ever seen. In fact, I think every rapture movie I've seen was pre-trib. Now that I think about it. You know, when Kirk Cameron had heard a few of my messages on the time of the rapture, the very night that thing came out, he came and visited our fellowship the next morning, which was Sunday morning. And I didn't even know what he looked like. 
don't watch the sitcoms, you know. Uh, and somebody came up to me and said, Kirk Cameron's here. And they, and they took me to him and introduced him to me. He said, hey, I listened to your three messages on, I did way more than three, but he had three that were given to him. He goes, I've been sitting under John MacArthur for 10 years. I guess he went to the seminary for a while too. He goes, I've only heard the pre-trib position. I'm convinced now it's post-trib, you know. And then he wrote an article when he was with Ray Comfort's ministry about staying behind, you know, and Paul being torn between two different desires, one to go and be with the Lord and one to stay and minister and so forth. And he's had different views and prophecy, and I think he's gotten into the more of the, I can't say for sure, but I know he's hanging out with some of the uh, Calvinists and so forth that are more amill or maybe post-mill. But uh, there's a lot of different views prophetically, but you, 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 need, what, you need to really stay in the Scripture and study the context of the Scripture. Uh, but last time I'd actually talked to him about this subject, he said he was more post-trib than ever. But it's interesting because the Left Behind series, well, that whole term, Left Behind, where do you think it got its name? One taken, one what? One left. And being left behind, is that good or bad according to that series? The title. That's a bad thing. You don't want to be left behind because we're going to be caught up to meet him in the air, amen? Yet it's kind of interesting because a lot of those who push left behind viewpoint, or I should say the movie, will say, well, this text really is talking about being taken to judgment. Why would they do that? It's such a, a good rapture text. Why would they do that? For a very good reason. Not a very good exegetical reason. Not gr the greatest exegesis because it doesn't fit in their scheme when you take a closer look at it. Years ago, that Larry Norman movie, uh, song, I wish we'd all been ready. That song was about, you know, two people walking up a hill. One's taken, one's left. And you could buy, with a piece of bread, you could buy a bag of gold. And, you know, I wish we'd all been ready. One's taken, one's left behind. I wish we'd all been ready. And I'm not going to quote all the lyrics to you. But it was all about the rapture and being left behind. But it was used in a pre-trib context. Understand? It was used that before the rapture, one will be taken, one will be left. And then believers everywhere will be taken and others will be left. But guess what? Upon a closer look, when you look at these verses, they don't really fit the pre-trib context. Because if you back up a few verses, look at verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be take, uh, dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the, the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then they'll see the Son of Man huh, and it will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Go to verse 40 and 40, 41 and 41. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women grinding the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. In the context, one will be taken and one will be left. In the context of what time period relative to the tribulation period? Is this talking about before the tribulation? Immediately after. Right on, Jimmy. Verse 29. He talks about when he's coming back and to be ready. And then one will be taken, one will be left after the tribulation. So pre-tribs are like, you know, pre-trib scholars are like, uh-oh, this doesn't really work for us, does it? Because it's in the, a post-trib setting. 
Oh, we don't want this to be the rapture because we want the rapture to be seven years earlier so we don't have to go through the times that Jesus warned his elect apostles who, by the way, they're the leaders of the early church, right? They represent the church. Peter, James, John, and Andrew is who he's warning and he's saying when you see the abomination desolation, when you see these things, and right now a lot of people have been, I haven't done a whole lot of messages on the end times in a while and a lot of people have been talking about the end times regarding things that are going on. So, I'm, uh, you know, it's on my heart to do some here and there. And we'll get back in Revelation, which is really not talking about the end times in relative to what part of Revelation we're in because we're now talking about heaven in chapter 21 and 22, New Jerusalem, and the book of life at the end of verse chapter 20, which we'll get back into. But still, it's the book of Revelation, and we'll have a good time, and we'll backtrack and stuff a little bit here and there. But it's interesting. So you have some pre-trip people. Yeah, this is the rapture. Wish we'd all been ready, you know? And others are like, no, it's not the rapture. It can't be the rapture because if it's the rapture, it's after the tribulation. So it must mean something else. You, are you with me? Amen. Not going too fast, am I? Okay. Well, uh, after last week's message, and I decided to make it two messages instead of that one, uh, Brother Josh Spidell came up to me and said, Brother Joe, praise God, I'm looking forward to next week's message. I was just checking out and uh, showing somebody something J. Vernon McGee said on these verses. For, verses 40 and 41, one will be taken, one will be left, and how he was saying and showing that, hey, you know what? This is not about being raptured. This is about being taken in judgment and left behind, and those left behind will be the righteous. And he said he saw it on a YouTube video and so forth, so it was interesting what I was going to say about it. You know, it's kind of interesting because uh, I went and saw what Javer McGee was saying there. He's a popular teacher. has a lot of good things to say. Disagree with him on the time of the rapture and a couple other important issues. But uh, his teachings and a lot of others bless a lot of people. But you know what? I didn't look at the video. I just went online and just, see to, just to see if I could see any commentary. He had on verses 40 and 41. And, and I found it. I'm not sure it's the same that's in the video, but this is what I found. And he basically makes the same statement Joshua was saying that he stated, which is very typical of pre-trib dispensationalists. J. Vernon McGee says, many folk think that this refers, I can't do his southern accent here, uh, many folk think this refers to the rapture, but he is not talking about the rapture in the Olivet Discourse. Why? At least Tim LaHaye says in Matthew 24, 29-31, when Jesus gathers his elect, at least he calls that the rapture. Tim LaHaye is the one who, you know, the main guy behind the Left Behind movie, but he calls it the second phase of the rapture. At least he calls it the rapture, though, because being, we're being gathered up. The elect are being gathered up, you know, from the four winds. And Mark 13, it says, from the farthest ends of the earth and the farthest ends of heaven, right? That's the dead in Christ and then we who are alive. But then he wants there to be a first phase of the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation. There's no phase when you go to, the beginning, when you go to Matthew chapter 24, the first verses, you don't see a rapture anywhere. But I think he says it's between like verses uh, 9 and 10. You know, between the verses. <laughs> Nothing between the verses except empty space, but that's where he puts it. I've got a number of his books, and he has a chart, and then he has the rapture pointed. Here's the rapture in Matthew 24, but it's between two verses, the arrow, you know. It's like there's no rapture there, but it's where he imagines this to be, where they hope it to be, because they don't want to face tribulation for the name of Jesus. Now, but the early church, man, the apostles, when they were whipped and flogged and beaten for preaching the gospel, 
they said better to obey God than men. They went right back into the city and preached the gospel. They said they re rejoiced, it says, that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord. That's how we need to apply what Jesus did to our lives. When we go through suffering for his sake, we need to rejoice that we're counted worthy, that he allows us to go through things to show, us, to show him how much he loves us and be a witness to others. Amen? But it's interesting because when you look at this text now, uh, let me just read his whole quote here. Many folk think that this refers to the rapture, but he is not talking about the rapture in the Olivet Discourse. It is quite obvious that he is saying, if we will just let him say it, as of the conditions that will exist in the world at the end of the age, he likens them to the days of Noah. And when the flood came in the days of Noah, we are told that it took them all away. Whom did, whom did it take away? Noah and his family? No. Noah was left there or here on earth to continue his existence uh, on the, on the, of the human race to continue the existence of the human race. But it was that crowd of unbelievers, that crowd of great sinners who were removed from the earth. They were the ones taken away in judgment. Jesus says here, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man, comes, comes where? To the earth. Who will be taken away? Those who are judged. He leaves those who, are, or those who will enter into the kingdom to continue human life on this earth. Interesting. Now, so, well, wait a minute. What about Matthew 24, right? What about people being gathered up, right, and caught up? By the way, the, the same Greek word synagogue, uh, to be gathered up, is the same word that Paul uses, episunagoge. He used the word synagogue uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Concerning Christ's coming, are being gathered to him. Don't be deceived, he says. That day won't happen until what happens first. The Antichrist, the falling away. Those things, events happen before we're caught up. And Paul's definitely speaking of the rapture, 2 Thessalonians 2. Same Greek word that Jesus uses in Matthew 24, by the way. Now, I just want to give you a couple examples of shorter quotes. I didn't want to bog you down with too many quotes from people, just so you understand. John Walvoord, he's, been, he's probably the most respected, uh, one of the most respected for sure, but most respected for many years. The president of Dallas Theological Seminary for years and years on the teaching of the rapture. He has a book called The Rapture Question that I read years ago. Uh, it's probably the most popular pre-trib book on the uh, subject. And he, his, his statement on Matthew 24, 40, 41, of one being taken, one being left, is this. One will be taken. I'm sorry. The one who is left is left to enter the kingdom. So it's a good thing to be left behind. The one who is taken is taken in judgment. I.e., taken in judgment. John MacArthur's study Bible which I consulted, knowing his view, uh, says this, Matthew 24, verses 40 through 41. John MacArthur writes, one will be taken, i.e. taken in judgment. He then he references verse 39, just as, Noah, just as in Noah's day. This is clearly not a reference to the catching away of believers described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Now guess what, guys? I mean, he's just making it, that's, you know, just like Walver, just like J. Vernon McGee. And he's saying this is clearly, you know. Now, guess what? Whatever verses 40 and 41 means, it does not, uh, does not affect my, our rapture position. It doesn't affect it one way or another. Because Jesus is still coming after the tribulation. Whatever those verses mean, right? So we have no skin in this, so to speak, as far as whether it proves 
a pre, uh, pre or post trib rapture. We don't, it doesn't have to, it, it could even be speaking of, you know, in a certain context, what if it did mean that, you know, certain people will be left for destruction at that time? Well, there'll be a lot of people destroyed when Jesus comes back. It doesn't affect the time of the rapture. But if you're pre-trib, and it's teaching one being taken, and it's speaking of the rapture, it really hurts your position, especially when you say there's no rapture at the end of the tribulation. Let me give you eight reasons. Though go pretty quick. We'll get done on time. Lord, help me keep my word now. <laughs> We're getting done at 8.30, right, on, on a Thursday night. So uh, one will be taken, one will be left. Okay. Hmm. Eight reasons. And guess what? Some of these reasons are definitely stronger than others. All, I, all you need is one really, really good reason. But we've got eight pretty good reasons and some and just slam dunk reasons. Uh, there is a clear parallelism between Noah his family, and those left behind. And the rapture here. <laughs> but they're missing something. They're, try- they're, they're making the wrong parallel. In fact, go to Luke chapter 17. Just hang a right. Luke chapter 17, verses 34 through 36. Jesus says, I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the same field or be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Now, they want us to believe this means to be taken in judgment and left behind to just enjoy life, enjoy the Lord. The context, back up to verse 37 or verse 27. Who is taken first? Verse 27. They were eating, they were drinking, says Jesus, just a few verses earlier, right? Verse 27. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah, what? Entered the ark. Who was taken? Noah. And he entered the ark and his family was taken and God shut the door behind him and the water came up and as the water rose, what happened to the ark? It rose and they were taken away. And who was left behind for destruction? The wicked, the wicked, they're misreading the parallel. And it'll become more and more obvious as we go on with these other pictures. And the flood came and destroyed them all. (laughs) It destroyed them all. Those that were left behind were destroyed, the wicked. Those that were taken were the righteous, amen? And the parallel is Noah and his family being taken off the earth as the flood waters rose and they rose up, amen? Okay, are you with me so far? Praise God. We could stop there almost. I need, I like to make a lot stronger arguments than that, than that you know. Uh, but that's a good argument. So Noah's family is described as being taken first the day that when Noah had entered into the ark, right? And then the flood came and swept them all away. Wow. Okay. Evidence number two. There's also a clear parallelism when Jesus teaches this regarding Lot and his family. Amen? Amen. Okay, what happened? Let's, now let's go, go ahead again and let's see. Verse 34, I tell you that that night there will be two in the one bed and one will be taken and the other will be left. What's this a parallel of? 
Back up, just back up again. Back up to verse 28. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating and they were drinking. They were buying and they were selling and they were planning and they were building. But on the day that Lot, what? Went out from Sodom. By the way, who took him out of Sodom? Angels. Amen. He was taken. But in the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Destroyed who? The Sodomites who were what? Left behind. Are you with me? There is parallelism here, but when you look at it closely, you don't have to look at it closely. You can close one eye. Okay, you still see it. It's pretty clear, you know? It'll be just the same. It'll be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. That's good stuff. Amen, Michael. It's because you love the truth, man. Verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Wow. Remember she turned around, looked at Sodom with a longing. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, says Jesus. And whoever loses his life will keep it or preserve it. I tell you on that night, there will be two in one bed and one will be taken, the other will be left. Man, if you just heard him talk about Noah being taken away in his family and those left for destruction, the flood, if you just heard him talk about being Lot, his family being taken out of, the, of, of Sodom and others left behind for destruction, and he says to be ready, one will be taken, one will be left. What do you think he means when he's saying one will be taken? Taken out, the righteous. Amen, absolutely. Man. By the way, I could have made that two. Uh, I'm sorry, that's number two. Uh, we could just, again, end right there because the clear parallelism is, is pretty, 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 pretty clear there. Evidence number three, though. Evidence number three. The Greek word for being taken is paralambano, okay? Para, it's a compound word, and lambano, okay? And it's a word that's almost always in the New Testament Greek. It's used like 49, 50 times, almost 50 times. has a very positive uh, meaning typically, almost always. And uh, it's only in, in, in Thayer's Greek lexicon, Greek dictionary, right? The first definition for Feral and Bono was to take to, to take with one's self, to join to one's self. Okay, it's a beautiful word. It means to take one in close association with you. Okay, typically is what it means. In fact, it's used in John chapter 14 of the rapture. Verse 3, the same Greek word. When Jesus says, And I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming again and will take you. And the Greek word is there from para and lambano, which means to receive, to draw near, to associate with oneself. And I will para lambano, or take you to myself, that where I am, there you will also be. So that word paralambano is also used of the rapture. Now that doesn't mean since it's used in the rapture in John 14, it has to be being used in the rapture here. My point is, is that it's usually used in a very positive sense. Okay? And uh, it's not very oftenly used of in a negative sense. Evidence number four. Evidence number four. And I think this one's important because Jesus warns about when they, vultures being gathered together. What's that going on over there? So, somebody's chewing some gum. It's hot lard over there, man. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, it's out there. Some, some chipmunk or something? It's okay. Hey, don't get hurt if you look out there. Be careful. Be ready to rise up, brothers. 
and sisters you can fight to. Love them first. If you have to defend yourself. Oh, praise the Lord. Well, one will be working in the field and, you know. <laughs> uh, so evidence number four. Jesus pictures the vultures gathering together as part of this event. Because in Luke 17, verse 37, and answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Meaning when this takes place, I mean, what's, what's it going to look like? Well, where would, the, where would the bodies be scattered? In, in Sodom or in the flood? On the ground, right? The left, those that are left behind, amen? And I think that's important. Also, we read, the first time we read, we read in verses 40 and 41 in Matthew 24, amen, which we'll return to Matthew 24 in a little bit. But when you go to Matthew chapter 24, in verse 27 now, you can go there now, actually, because now we'll just probably spend most of our time in Matthew 24 where we started. For just as lightning comes from the east, verse 27, for just as lightning comes to the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will what? Gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark, and the moon will not give its light, and the, powers, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And the sun of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels to great, uh, with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So guess what? Are the vultures attacking those who have been gathered to the sky? Or on the earth? On the earth, those who are mourning, those who are under judgment. Amen? So again, we see that those who are left behind are those who are under judgment, even the vultures devouring their flesh. In fact, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, when the bride has made herself ready at the end of the tribulation period, and yes, the bride is mentioned in the book of Revelation, contrary to what some pre-tribs try to say, during the tribulation period, and she's made ready, then he returns in verse 11 for his bride. It comes with the armies of heaven. And then what do we read? And I saw heaven open, verse 11. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Well, then guess what happens in verses 20 and 21. And the beast, meaning the Antichrist, was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which comes from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. The birds, the vultures, same second coming at the second coming. Filled with the flesh of who? Those who were caught up in the sky and taken? Or those who were left behind? Not the bride. The bride's not, you know, being, filling up the stomachs of these birds. Those who are left behind. The wicked, Amen. So, I mean, I love these evidences, man. That's four. Four good evidences. Evidence number five. And I think this one is, you know, uh, just absolutely spectacular because it's the parallel to what Jesus is talking about. It's the most obvious one we should be looking for. I mean, it's just staring us in the face. One will be taken, one will be left. What does he mean one will be taken, one will be left? Did he just talk about anybody being taken prior to verses 40 and 41 in Matthew 24? Yes. 
Verses 29 through 31. I'm not going to read them for the third time. But again, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark, the moon will not give its light, and the powers of heaven will be shaken, right? I won't quote it either. I'm not quoting it. I'm doing the same as things reading it. But what's going to happen? He'll gather his elect from the four winds, amen, into the sky, amen. And the tribes of the earth will what? Mourn. Did he gather the tribes of the earth, yes or no? No, he's gathered his elect. Who's left behind? The tribes who are mourning, amen. Then after that, he talks about one being taken and one being what? Left. One being taken and one being left the most obvious parallel that Jesus is trying to draw is in reference to his coming in verses 29 through 31, immediately after the tribulation. Amen? Are you with me? That's as clear as it gets. That's the main, you know, we could have started with that, but I didn't want to make it number one. That's, that's obvious. What he's teaching there is there'll be the elect gathered and the wicked left behind and the tribes of earth will mourn and they'll be judged. And one will be taken and one will be left. So uh, I'm tempted to expound on, on that. But I want to get through all eight of these. But we don't want to fail to uh, observe the connection between Jesus' second coming to gather his elect, leaving the wicked behind a judgment, and then a little bit later him saying one will be taken, one will be left. And also him giving similar parallels with regard to Noah's family being taken away and the wicked left behind for judgment, and Lot and his family being taken out of Sodom, the wicked being left behind for judgment. Now remember, I talked about that Greek word paralimbano. I want to refer back to that now in our, our evidence number six. Because the word paralimbano, I mentioned to you it's used almost 50 times, and it's only used three times, I think, in the entire New Testament negatively. But it's important that you catch this. Let's go back now to Matthew 24. Now notice in verse 24, or verse uh, 40 and 41, one will be what? Taken. What's the Greek word there for taken? Paralimbano. Okay. Paralimbano. Okay. Now it's interesting when you look at verse 39, right? Well, it says the flood took them all away. Here's where the confusion is. In the English, you see the flood takes them all away. And then a few verses later, one will be taken, one will be left. So if you're just an English reader and you don't consult the Greek, you think there's a parallel with the English words, right? There's not in the Greek. The Greek word is airo, A-I-R-O, for flood took them away. It's translated in the Berean Study Bible. And they were oblivious until the flood came and swept them all away. Okay, it's translated in the English Standard Version. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. The Christian Standard Bible and also the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is the same one but with a few changes. They did not know until the flood swept them all away. And many of the translations translate Iro swept. I'm not saying Iro should always be translated swept. My point is the translator made sure uh, that they made a distinction, whether that was their motive or not. But there's a distinction in verse 39 from those who are taken, being swept away versus those who are taken up. Or in contrast to, in the, in, in the, there's a contrast in those English translations, which I think is fitting. Why? Because in the Greek, you would not see a parallel. You would see Iro, and you would see Paralabano, which has been used by Jesus of the rapture. 
okay? So my point is, is somebody will let's say, hey, look, it says the flood took them away. And then here, one will be taken, one will be left. And they'll disassociate it with the larger context and the more poignant context, the more pertinent context that we'll be caught up to meet him in the air, we'll be gathered, the elect will be gathered, and the wicked will be left behind, verse 29 through 31. And they say, oh, look, took and took. The same word, no. Unless you're a King's James only advocate that believe the English corrects the Greek, you know, which is ridiculous. In the Greek, there's not a parallel in the words being used. Those who were swept away, the word Iro is used. Those who are taken in contrast to those who were left behind, which were then swept away after Noah was taken, uh, is paralambano, a different word, which I just think is very, I think it's in, that's inter, interests me because I love to look at the Greek. Uh, seventh evidence. The Greek turn, the Greek word left. Now, the Greek word left behind versus those who are taken is uh, aphiami. Aphiami is typically a uh, negative term. It's used in 1 Corinthians 7, 13, for instance, of a woman leaving behind or divorcing her husband, okay? And it, it doesn't have to be a negative term, but it's typically a negative term, just like paralambano is typically a positive term. And my point is, is those who are taken, a very positive word is used over of all the times it's used, almost always used in a positive sense. Once clearly used of the rapture, in chapter 14, I believe, use of the rapture here in Matthew 24, use the rapture also in Luke chapter 17, Paralambano, where Ephemi uh, is used of uh, being left behind, often in a negative sense. So there's a contrast there. You'd rather be taken, I'm telling you right now, than left behind when Jesus comes. Okay? You'd rather be caught up to meet him in the air. Eighth evidence. Eighth evidence. Matthew 24. Now, we already saw... And I always tell you, man, make sure you read before and after verse. If you're not understanding what that verse is meaning, I mean, we should be reading the scripture in context anyway. But a good rule of thumb is to understand context. That goes at just reading anything, right? You want to understand context, especially when you're reading God's word. You want to understand context. So when he's talking about one being taken, one being left, we see the, the, the most important context is that he's using a bunch of illustrations and warnings regarding his coming. After he says in verses 29 through, the whole thing is about, the question is, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And in Matthew 24, it's, what, when will these things be, meaning the destruction of the temple? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So he's talking about not being deceived about secret comings. They say, I'm in the wilderness or in the inner rooms. Don't believe them. And a lot of people believe in a secret coming. He's going to come secretly. And he's also concerned about a premature understanding of the coming. A coming, and he says, don't be deceived. The end is not yet, as though they don't think they're going to have to go through anything. And he brings them through and says, when you see this, do this. And watch out for that. False Christ and false prophets will rise, showing great signs and wonders, deceiving if possible even the elect. Behold, I've warned you in advance. All these deceptions that are going on right now with the new apostolic reformation, with uh, what's going on in Bethel, with people claiming to be apostles everywhere and doing miracles, and all kinds of believers just following them. And, but it's powerful. It's a very powerful deception because some of the most beautiful music in Christendom is sucking people in. A lot of the Bethel music, a lot of the music from Hillsong and so forth is so pretty. Oh, these people must be of God. And before you know it, you're believing in gold dust and, you know, getting your foot stretched out and, you know, and all kinds of strange things. Now, we've got to be careful. But it's interesting the, the, the emphasis is, is his coming. And when he talks about us being caught up, the elect being taken, 
and the wicked being left in mourning, the tribes of the earth mourning, he's illustrating that with one being taken, one being left. But guess what? He illustrates it again in Matthew chapter 25. This is still part of the Olivet Discourse. It's two chapters long. Then the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, and he's still describing his coming, will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flask along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Verse 7. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. They didn't bring any extra oil. They had just the oil that was in their lamps, whatever was left. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Who was taken, by the way? The believers, the wise virgins, or the foolish ones? The wise ones were taken. That's being taken. They were taken to be with the Lord. The door was shut. Who was left behind? Those who were running about trying to find oil were left behind. This comes pretty much on the heels of those other verses. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, for us. And he answered, truly I say to you, I do, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. You have to be watching the signs. You have to be alert. So that's the eighth evidence, <laughs> is the wise virgins were taken. The foolish ones were left behind. That's the context over and over again in Matthew chapter 24. Whether it's known as family being taken to the ark, the ark being lifted up from the earth, and the others left behind and destroyed by the water. Whether it's uh, Lot, or that was known as family, or Lot and his family being taken out of Sodom and the wicked being left behind for judgment, or the five wise virgins being taken to the wedding feast. And guess what? That fits very well with Jesus coming back for his bride in Revelation chapter 19. The end of the tribulation, his bride is made ready. Caught up, those who are left behind, where, Lord? They're left behind to be eaten with the beast, and well, the beast and the Antichrist, or the beast and the false prophet are thrown alive in the lake of fire. So they don't get eaten by vultures, they get thrown alive in the lake of fire. Uh, the wicked, their souls will go to Hades and wait the great white throne judgment and then be sentenced to the lake of fire. But the righteous will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, amen? We'll be forever with the Lord, forever with our loved ones in Christ. And then we will descend with him and reign with him for a thousand years. A little bit on uh, some application of what we've been talking about to our own lives is Sodom was filled with sexual perversion, as you know. It was filled with greed, according to Ezekiel, apathy, a lack of love for the poor, uh, people just running roughshod over each other. And uh, according to the book of Jude, and also even, it, it was so wicked that uh, the men were trying to have sex with the angels. Do you remember that? 
That's how wicked it was. And it says in the book of Jude that the Lord destroyed them to give them an example of what happens to those who are sexually perverse. So it's important that we make sure that we uh, abstain from sexual temptation that's outside of marriage and uh, any sexual perversion, that we make sure that we live holy lives under the Lord, amen, and that we watch our lives and make sure that we're living pure lives. The ten virgins, that, that's an emphasis on purity there. And five of them, as we'll talk about in a moment, were not ready. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Lot was saved out of Sodom for a little while. Then she turned back, amen. And she looked back in the ideas with a longing of wanting to be there and not wanting to give up her former life and putting material things and things of this world and, and her associations and whatever she had there in, in Sodom before the Lord and before the new life that he wanted for her. And he brought judgment upon her and boom, pillar of salt, bam. And Jesus said in the last days, be like it was in the days of Lot. And that means, and when he says, remember Lot's wife, that's a warning to you and me to make sure that we don't put our affections on the transitory things of this world. Even our own families, it says, if we love our, you know, if you love your spouse or you love your, your kids or you love your wife or you love your husband or you love your, more than the Lord, right? You're not worthy of him. Amen? I'm paraphrasing what Jesus said, but he warned about that. So we want to make sure that we put him before everyone and everything. Amen? By the way, there's come a time when it says brother will betray brother. That's pretty crazy, huh? That's pretty concerning. That means you want to make sure you're more tight with Jesus than anybody else. That way, if the people that are closest to you in your life break your heart, your most important relationship is still intact. Amen? But if but if people are more important to you than Jesus, loved ones, family, and they break your heart, then it's going to be easy for you to get bitter and turn away from Jesus because he wasn't first in your life. It's important that you and I make sure that Jesus is first in our lives. Amen? Even over our familial relationships. It's absolutely imperative that we love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Oh, it's important that we honor our parents. If you're a young person, yeah, that's... That's obeying the Lord unless your parent teaches you to do something contrary to Scripture. It's imperative that you love your children and you're there for them and that you're loyal to them. Amen? But you can't put your children before Jesus. If you put your children before Jesus, you don't just betray Jesus, you betray your children. You know why? Because if Jesus is not first, you can't love your children with his love because you're grieving him and you're not in his spirit. Do you understand that? So this is very, very important to understand. We need to set our affections on things above, not on Sodom, not on Babylon. In Revelation chapter 18, verses 4 and 5, the Lord says to his people just before the last plagues, come out of her, my people, lest you partake of her sins and of her plagues. And God calls us not to be part and not to be in love with the evil world system that we're in, but to be salt and lights here. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 says, Therefore, since you have been raised with Christ, 
Strive for the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your affections or your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, not in Sodom, not in Babylon. We're citizens of heaven first, amen? But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? Now, it says it wouldn't just be like the days of Lot, but like the days of Noah. And in some respects, there was some normalcy going on. Oh, there'll be a lot of wrath, things poured out, judgments during the tribulation period, but they'll be in different parts of the earth at different times. And at the same time, the Antichrist kingdom will thrive all the way to the very end to a degree until the great judgment comes at, the very, at Christ's second coming. There'll be some horrific judgments, but they're mostly coming at the very end. And... It'll be like the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, there was great violence. Do you remember Genesis chapter 6? Incredible amount of violence, guys. You might think they were defunding the police back then or something, you know. And there was sexual perversion. There were demon-possessed men raping women, you know. There were, I mean, the thoughts of men were only evil continually. I mean, to these days, it's hard to watch. Hard to find a somewhat wholesome movie even. Out of the tens of thousands of movies that are out there, you've got to be very careful what you watch these days. Amen? It's how polluted people's hearts and minds are. It's like so many people that are making things are, are just bent on evil. And we've got to be careful and wise, of course. And in Noah's day, there was just a lot of impurity. Go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Because we need to make sure that we pay attention to what the Lord is warning us about here. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, not John, but 1 John. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world, hates, or the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Isn't that going to be awesome? That's God's goal in your life, that you'll be more like Jesus, that we'll be like him because we will see him, what? Just as he is. We're going to be transformed and become Christ-like. Look at verse 3, though. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, what? Purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who has this hope in Jesus and looking forward to his return and being with him and being made like him purifies himself even as he is pure. That means you're seeking to be right with him and to grow in purity, to grow in sanctification, to be holy as he is holy. Amen? To be like him. And you can really know whether you're looking forward to his return or not. And you might say, what if he doesn't return in my lifetime? Well, guess what? When you die, you're going to be with him. We're all going to be with him if we're a believer. And you need to purify yourself as he is pure. The Bible says, touch not the unclean thing. You know, the Bible says, it warns about, you know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 17 or so, in chapter 7, verse 1, it warns, you know, come out of her and be separate, saith the Lord. Right? What fellowship does light have with darkness? The table of God with the table of demons, you know? 
he warns about that. You know, what fellowship does Christ have with Belial? Light with darkness, believers with unbelievers. He says, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. And I will walk in you. I'll live in you, you know. You'll be his temple. And he said, then I will receive you. I'll welcome you as sons and daughters. It's conditional as to whether or not we're welcomed as sons and daughters. Then in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, therefore, he says, we're to purify ourselves, cleanse ourselves, purify ourselves for every sin of the spirit and of the flesh. It says, in the fear of the Lord. This is serious stuff. But you know what? If you're looking to Jesus and you want him to return and, and, and you want to be with him forever, you know, like a bride who gets her dress ready, right? And make sure it's clean. Make sure it's clean. Guess what we do with our lives? We purify our lives. We make sure we're not involved in smut and perversion and grieving the Holy Spirit. Amen? So it's imperative, guys, that you're, you're, you're being holy and living for the Lord and not allowing perversion in your life, whether it's pornography, whether it's, uh, you know, hurting other people, you know, wanting to, you know, having malice and hatred and unforgiveness and uh, in your heart, violence toward other people, wanting them destroyed, whether you do it physically or you want to do that in your heart, that's not pure. We're supposed to be like Jesus, amen? And we need to repent and say, God, have mercy on me. Help me to be more like Christ, amen? And help me not be part of this wicked culture where I rejoice in evil, but where I turn from evil. Amen? Amen. And cling to the Lord and become more pure. And think of the ten virgins. They all fell asleep. They all got drowsy. You ever get drowsy? You don't intend to fall asleep. You're like, whoa, what happened? Can you imagine that? And then Christ comes and you're like, or he's coming. He's like sign in the sky. Like, and then you're like, what's going on? Your life is all messed up. Five go out. They all had the oil. What's the oil a picture of? Well, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. David said, when he got involved in adultery, take not the Holy Spirit from me. Cast me not away from thy presence. In Hebrews chapter 6, it talks about those who had received the Holy Spirit, but then they'd fallen away. And like the ground that's destroyed with fire, that's what's left for them. Five of them weren't right with the Lord. The other five they had lamps. They had the oil. Amen. Picture the Holy Spirit. And then they had light. Where's the light come from? The word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's breathed by the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. Theonoustos. God breathed. Holy Spirit breathed this. Holy Spirit spake through the prophets, it says. And his word is a lamp. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. They could see. Amen. Are you, do you have the Holy Spirit? Are you a Christian trusting Jesus? Are you keeping your eyes focused on Jesus? Do you have the lamp? Are you abiding in God's word? I'm so glad you're here tonight. Or you're watching my live stream because that means you're like, hey, you know, I want to I wanna trim my lamp better. Amen. I want to be fired up. In fact, listen to what 1 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter 1.19 says. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. I love that because he compares his word to a lamp and we follow the lamp, we use the lamp until Jesus' morning star comes, leads us right to him. That goes so well. I love, you know, the intertextual verses that just, I love them, that all just fit together like a hand in a glove. And that's what he's talking about. 
the parable of the sower. I'm sorry, the parable of the ten virgins. You want to be, that means a lot of people that claim to be following Jesus are not going to be ready when he comes. That's what that parable is telling us. Half the people right there. And that's kind of crazy because that's half the people toward the very end. Who knows how many people fell out prior to that during the tribulation period. How many of these people in those, with regard to those five virgins are depicted by, are depicted by, you know, or depict, how many of these virgins depict what's going on in, in Babylon? Come out of my people, lest you partake of her sin and her plagues. And finally, and it's not one of Paul's finalies. Sometimes Paul says finally, then he goes on for a couple chapters. I could do that too in different ways. Uh, but finally, when he says, remember Lot's wife, what he says right after that in Luke 17, he who saves his life will what? Lose it. He who loses his life will save it. He, meant, he said that later on in Matthew. He said that a couple times in Matthew, in Luke 17, and Mark. Jesus said that more than once. What's his point? If you save your life and refuse to surrender to Jesus and turn to him in faith and follow him, he said, nobody can be my disciple unless he what? Takes up his cross, right? Denies himself daily and follows me. But if you say, no, I'm not going to follow him. I'm going to do my own thing and just call myself a Christian. You're going to lose it, man, forever. If you try to save your life, you're going to lose it forever. But if you lose your life and surrender to Jesus, amen, then he'll save you, amen? He will not save that which he cannot command. Amen? Why do you call me Lord and not do the things I say, said Jesus. Amen. Amen. And many will say, Lord, Lord. They'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Oh, there's some he never knew. Those are the false prophets, by the way, in Matthew 7. There's some he says, I don't know you, the five of the virgins, right? And then there's others. It says in 2 Peter 2, 20-22, after knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, epigenosis, that's experiential knowledge, they return to the vomit. And after being washed, they return back to the mire. It's important that if you've been washed from your sins, that you remain, you continue to walk in the Spirit. Amen? You continue, continue to keep your lamps burning, Jesus said. Amen? And be ready for his return. And then guess what? When he returns, you'll be taken. And others will be left behind. Right now, Let's make sure that we're going to be taken. Amen. And let's make sure that we can take as many people with us by leading them to Jesus and encouraging them to keep their lamps bright. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. It's living.